Um, welcome at the third lecture of Network Security. Uh, my name is uh, Eiko Pras. Um, as you uh, may recall from the first lecture that we gave, uh, we basically have in uh, network, uh, network Security, we have two kind of uh, lectures. We have lectures which focus on, say, the protocols, which protocols exist to make your internet usage more secure. And the second part is on what are the attacks that are currently happening on the internet and how can you defend against these kind of attacks. So we're now still in this first part where we look at protocols. And last week, Georgios Karigianis looked at the data link layer and he discussed wireless LAN security. Today we move one layer up, so we move to the network layer. We look at IPsec, so secure IP. As you may guess, next week we will move up to the transport layer and we also do a little bit of application layer. So that is the plan for today and the plan for next week. Usually we start here with a um, recapitulation of the questions or say the answers of the questions that you uh, got the previous week. But uh, there was some mistake on configuring Blackboard, which means that um, not everyone was able to submit the, uh, yeah, the answer in time. So the um, deadline was uh, postponed till next Monday. And uh, therefore, we don't give yet the answer, for obvious reasons, I would say. Um, so that will be next week, where Georgios Karigianis will give the answers for um, the wireless LAN security exercise. Okay. Today we look at IPsec, and this is in detail what we will do today. We will first give an overview of IPsec, then I'll show some slides how IPsec is used in practice. Then we look at the standardization of IPsec within the IETF, Internet Engineering Task Force. Then we'll come to the, say, the technical real content, which is the different modes in which you can use IPsec. There are basically two modes, the transport mode and the tunnel mode. And then we look at, say, the, the two main protocols of IPsec, which is AH, Authenticated Header, and uh, which is ESP, uh, that is uh, Encapsulating Security Payload. Um, after we've discussed these two protocols, we will shortly discuss the relation between IPsec and VPNs, Virtual Private Networks. Um, then we'll look at the key management related to IPsec, and then I have two slides for the summary. So that is the plan for today. And, um, yeah, of course, I'll start with the overview in the beginning. So what are the services that IPsec is providing? And the services are things that we have defined at the first lecture. Peter Tjerk de Boer gave a few security services. And among the main services that we have is authentication which IPsec can provide, data confidentiality, which is also provided by IPsec, and data integrity, um, which is the third service provided by IPsec. Data integrity means that if you send data, the IPsec protocol will make sure that data will not be modified, reordered, replayed, changed, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, these are relatively, yeah, complete services. There are some services which are not on this slide, but in certain situations can be also provided by IPsec, like uh, non-repudiation, but that depends a little bit on which protocols or which options you exactly take. Um, 
The service that is, for example, not provided is um, uh, availability of service. So if someone does a denial of service attack or wants to do a denial of service attack on you, you can't protect if you just use IPsec. There's no protection against that with IPsec. You need completely different solutions. Um, one element which I will discuss at the end of today is key management because you will use for this authentication and for this data confidentiality service for which you have to encrypt data, you will uh, use keys. And there is a key management protocol that allows you to simplify the use of these keys. Finally, last remark. Uh, in IP version 4, that is the version that is nowadays still widely used, IPsec is an option. And you can use it or you cannot use it. If you go to IP version 6, it is always there. Right? You can still say I'm not using it, but it is already in all packet headers, etc. So um, it is part of IP version 6, but not of IP version 4. In this lecture, I will only talk about IP version 4. But the principles that I explained here are also true for IPsec. Okay, so these are the services that we have with IPsec. Let's now look at what are the specific protocols. And we have two main protocols plus a third key exchange protocol. The main protocols are authentication header and encapsulating security payload. And if you look at the functions that these protocols, these two protocols provide, you see that authentication header provides authentication. Yes, of course, that's in the name. It does access control, replay pro protection, integrity, and in some cases, non-repudiation. And if you look at ESP, it is very similar, except that we have added confidentiality. Uh, confidentiality is not here. So if you send something over the Internet and you don't want someone to read it, you have to use ESP. If you use authentication header, people who are in the middle can still capture your data and read it. So if you send passwords or sensitive data uh, over the Internet, don't do it via this AH, but always use ESP. If you look at ESP, you also see that there's authentication. That was something that was originally not in the first design. In the first design, you could choose between authentication or between confidentiality. Later, they added to the ESP also authentication. Okay, so these are the protocols. Let's now look at how a typical scenario in practice could look like. Um, and here you have uh, basically three communicating partners. You can have here an isolated system running IPsec. So IPsec is installed <coughs> on that system. It can be a laptop, can be uh, a desktop PC, whatever you want. And if it sends something, it sends normal IP header, it sends um, payload, but after the IP header, you include an IPsec header. And there are different kind of headers, I'll come to that a little bit later, depending if you use AH or ESP. But what you do is you include this extra header, and you do something with the payload to make it more secure. Um, that's one option. Another option is that you have a kind of local area network, or for example your home network. You connect a couple of systems to it, and these systems need not know anything about IPsec. However, your gateway, which you use to connect to the rest of the Internet, 
your gateway does know about IPsec and if traffic is going out of your local area, so not between this system and that system, but for example between this system and a the system there, then it goes via this gateway and the gateway will add all the IPsec information. So the gateway will include an IPsec header and it will also do something with the payload to make it more secure. Then this IPsec packet will go over the public internet and if it goes to, for example, another local area network, it will be received here also by a gateway, security gateway. The security gateway will then analyze all the security aspects and will then remove this IPsec header and yeah, the things that were added to make the payload secure. It will remove that uh, if the, everything is okay and then send the normal packet over this second local area network again. So in this situation, the end systems here and there do not need to know anything about IPsec. It's the gateway that is doing things on behalf of IPsec. Um, but in this scenario, it is the end system that does IPsec. And that combination is possible. Okay. This is very rough overview of IPsec. Let's now first look at how IPsec is used in practice. Um, I was interested in this question, how is IPsec used in practice, because I took over this lecture in 2006 or something like that, and I had the previous reader, and the previous reader, written by someone else, predicted that in a few years um, IPsec would completely replace SSH uh, and HTTPS. It was a prediction that people had, say, six, seven years ago. So. I was interested if that is correct. So uh, what I did also, I looked at this this morning, is I looked at, uh, say, the usage of um, IPsec and other security protocols on the Internet 2. The Internet 2 is the research backbone that we have in the US. In the Netherlands we have SurfNet. In Europe we have Géant as the uh, Internet backbone for research. But in the US you have Internet 2. And they have, on this URL, weekly statistics, although it somehow stopped in April this year, I don't know why, but they have for 10 years weekly statistics where you can see the u how different protocols have been used over the Internet 2 backbone. And here you roughly see what is used by SSH, Secure Shell, HTTPS, which that is what we use for secure web access, IPsec and then it's divided into the three parts, ESP, AH and the Internet Key Exchange Protocol. And if you look at the number of octets that are being transferred over the Internet 2, you see that 2.3% of the octets is on SSH, 2.6% is on HTTPS, so that's a little bit more, but roughly one-tenth is on IPsec ESP. So the prediction that people had a couple of years back that IPsec would take over SSH and HTTPS is not correct. And we'll later see why that prediction didn't become reality. If you look at the three IPsec protocols, then you see ESP is by far most used. It has in octets 5.131 terabytes, whereas if you look at AH, it has only 8.3 gigabytes on a weekly basis. 
So there's quite a difference between this number and this number. So most people use ESP, but still I will start explaining AH. If you look at the Internet Key Exchange Protocol, it has even less, but it plays a different role. So real data will not be transferred over this key exchange protocol. You only need this key exchange protocol at the beginning. So it's a bit unfair. Um, you also see here not only the number of bytes or number of octets, but the number of packets that are being transferred over the Internet to backbone. And then you see a bit similar numbers, although here you see that the number of packets for SSH is uh, the percentage is lower than the number of octets, whereas here the uh, number of packets for HTTPS is higher than uh, the percentage we have for octets. Okay, uh, this is uh, this year. If you look now at these numbers uh, and you go back for four years in time, then you see that SSH was at that moment, uh, say, 3.4 percent, 1.1 for uh, HTTPS, and IPsec was even lower. It was 0.28. This year it is 0.14 at that time. So there's not an enormous growth of secure data over the Internet 2 backbone. That may be related to the fact that the Internet 2 backbone is a research backbone and not a, say, commercial backbone. But these numbers are still not very high. That's roughly 5% of the data that is transferred in a secure way. But if you look over time, you sti still see a clear increase. And so the percentage may not dramatically change, but since total traffic goes up, you'll sti still see a clear change. So this is uh, SSH, the number of SSH octets. This is the 1st of Janu January 2002, and here we have 2010. And you see a steady increase. It is rather linear, I would say. This is what is happening with SSH. If you look at HTTPS, you see a different form. HTTPS, it was low in the beginning, but it goes more like this. So you may expect probably that HTTPS will overtake SSH in the future, uh, which somehow probably makes sense, because people do more and more stuff via the web. Web 2 is, say, main technology and SSH is yeah, relatively hard to use for the people who don't know anything about computers. So HTTPS is growing faster. If you now look at um, ESP, you also see that it is going up quite nicely. So this growth over time is still yeah, interesting. Right? It may mean that uh, IPsec will catch up. If you look, however, at AH, you see basically this straight line with some outliers. And, uh, th this outlier is, uh, say, a measurement mistake which they make. Uh, they have 32-bit counters and they wrap around once in a while and uh, they don't uh, uh, yeah, adjust the numbers for that. Um, so AH is, is not growing the usage. If you look at the key exchange protocol, however, you see here it is also relatively flat. Every point is one week, but it goes up a bit here. So there is some hope that uh, the key exchange protocol will finally take off. So this is usage of IP second practice. The lesson is that um, still most people don't encrypt their data. 90, 95% of the data is still unencrypted over the Internet.
IPsec, first I don't know how much and uh, last I in Maastricht the Netherlands. So that was the second time in the life of IETF that the people who to these protocols, they also have a couple of standards for the encryption algorithms. So encryption algorithms are not defined within the standards of IPsec. They are defined as separate standards and IPsec is just pointing to these encryption standards. The same is true with authentication algorithms. They are also defined in separate standards not specific for IPsec and the IPsec protocols they are just pointing to these authentication standards. Then there is something which they call domain of interpretation and which are basically the definition of parameters and values for uh, the authentication and encryption algorithms. Um, so this is a kind of bookkeeping, you could say. Um, so this is the rough picture of IPsec. But if you look at the, the RFCs that are defined, yes, there's a question. Good. Uh, so the question is, uh, the boxes are clear, but what are the arrows? Well, the arrows is basically what the specific things point to or what they in their references include. So for example, if you look, we have a document describing the architecture. The architecture document points to two protocols, ESP and AH. These protocols, they point to encryption algorithms. But the AH protocol, for example, is only pointing to authentication algorithms, not to encryption, because it's not doing any encryption. So that is the error. So this is relatively simple still to understand. You might expect that there's probably one standard for the architecture or one document describing the architecture, one document describing the uh, ESP protocol, one document for the AH protocol, one for this and one for this. But that is unfortunately too simple. This is just a list which you don't have to learn by hand. I will not ask this at the um, exam. But these are all IPsec-related um, documents. And I collected this a few years ago, so this list will have become bigger. Um, question, yes? Why are the last two zero bytes? Good question. Um, I think it is a um, mistake. <laughs> but I like to see that you study the details immediately. That's, uh, that's a good attitude. I like that. Um, but what you see here is just 
a long list of all kinds of standards that are related to IPsec. And <coughs> to make things even worse, uh, the IPsec working group who defined IPsec is now historic, so they have done their work, so they are not creating many more of these uh, documents. They maintain once in a while something. But there are other working groups that do similar stuff, or they, they use stuff, extend stuff, etc. So for example, if a new uh, authentication algorithm is defined, it's not part of, say, the IPsec working group, but it's in another working group. And if you look at what working groups are in the IETF active on the security, then this is just a list of working groups. And uh, again, don't ask me the details of all of them, but I can look at some of them. For example, let's start again at the bottom. TLS, Transport Layer Security, that is something which we will discuss next week. So you'll get something on that. You have a couple of things on uh, Secure Mine, and, um, which is about mail security. You have syslog, which is about uh, event logging. So if a system is crashing, uh, it will send a message, I'm going to crash and send that message to the manager. Um, well, there are many things here, and the key here is primarily to give you the feeling that there's a lot of activities going on on security. What we'll do in this lecture is very just say the top of the iceberg. We're not going into all these details. Fortunately for you, and for me, by the way. So, Okay. So that was the overview of IPsec standards. Now we come to the, say, the, the real content. Uh, and first I would like to discuss two modes in which you can use IPsec. So I did already say we have two protocols, AH and ESP, so you can choose if you want to use AH or ESP, although I just showed that most people use ESP in practice. But irrespective of this choice, there are still two modes that you can use. So there are already four options. Uh, you can use AH with transport and AH with tunnel, or ESP with transport and ESP with tunnel mode. Before I go into the details of that, let me first give an overview of these modes and how they roughly work. Here I have a picture of how, at a high level, the uh, IP packets look like. This is the original IP packet that uh, you should know after you have followed the lecture on telematic systems and um, applications. Um, you have an IP header and you have the payload. In the payload you have, of course, usually the TCP, but sometimes the UDP header, and you have other stuff like HTTP or whatever. But this payload, I don't care about it today. And this is just the IP header. If you use IPsec in transport mode, what you'll do is that between the IP header, so the original header that you have here, you put, and, and the payload, you put this IPsec header. So you include a new header in between. If you want to do tunnel mode, you still include here a new header, but you keep the old header. So basically you put this IPsec header before the old header instead of behind. And you put in front of this IPsec header a new IP header. So you have basically two IP headers. Now question to you is, what problems will this give in practice? Both. Yes? 
that's the correct answer. Huh? If you have uh, here a packet, original IP packet, which is close to or is the maximum length that you can transfer over your underlying infrastructure. So for example, if you have an Ethernet, then usually 1500 octets is the maximum. If you already have a packet that it has this maximum size and you include extra headers, then you may go over this maximum size of, for example, 1500. What will happen then? If you, uh, will the packet be thrown away or what happens? You think it will be thrown away. Who thinks it will be thrown away? Who thinks something different? Okay. Tell me what the things. Fragmentation, yes. IP has the possibility that if you send data which is larger than what you can transfer over the underlying infrastructure, you can cut it into pieces and send each fragment separately. And at the receiving side, you will then take all these fragments together and you reassemble the entire packet. So basically, if you do something like adding the IPsec header here and even this second new header, and you go over this maximum size, you will get two packets at IP level, or two fragments, I should say. Now one of, say, uh, roughly, uh, say, 1500, and one of, say, hundred or something like that. And that takes of course extra time. So you, nothing will get lost, but it takes extra time. So it goes at the expense of your performance. Um, other question. If you receive something, how do you know if you have this case, this case, or this case? It is uh, part of the introductory course of uh, networking, first year. Next header, correct. You have, in each header, you have a field which says what is the next header. Usually, if you have a standard IP packet, then in the IP header you have something like the next header is, or say the next protocol, is the transport protocol, uh, yeah, transport protocol, right? TCP or UDP. That is what you include here in the header. You tell what will come next. So, if you use transport mode, you will change something here in this IP header saying that the next thing will not be TCP, but the next thing will be this IPsec header. And in the IPsec header, you have that the next will be TCP. And here you have that the next will be IPsec header, and then you say the next is an IP header again. Basically, how you can have dozens of, say, IP headers after each other. It doesn't make sense in practice, but you can do so. Okay. Um, so I said there are two modes, transport mode and tunnel mode. Let's now look at uh, the differences in usage. If you have transport mode, the most common way is to use it between two end systems. So this system is directly talking IPsec. This system is directly talking IPsec. You just put this IPsec header in between and you transfer the packet over the inter internet. So that is when you use transport mode between directly two end systems. If you're not directly with your end system connected to the internet, 
but you have security gateways in, in between. So typically this is something that you may have at your home. You have a couple of machines here. They don't know anything about IPsec. But you have a security gateway which is translating all this IP packets, um, sending it to the other side. Then you usually use tunnel mode. And then it will include a new IP header, this IPsec header, this old IP header. Why would you in this case use tunnel mode and why not uh, transport mode? If I give the answer, it's simple, but that's usually in life. If you know the answer, everything is simple. Yes, that is... Uh, the, uh, your answer is uh, you can um, use more than one server at the other end. That is nearly correct. Say 90%, 95%. Yeah, it's, it has to do with IP addresses. What you do, this level, this security gateway, sends the packet to this one. So the IP addresses that you have to include here is not the IP address of this end system, but the IP address of this intermediate system. And the source IP address that you include in this new IP header is not this source, but it is this source. So the IP addresses that you have in the original IP header uh, this is source and this is destination, but the security gateway puts himself as source and this is destination. So you have two sets of addresses and you have to distinguish them. If you look at transport mode, you couldn't do that. With transport mode, you only have here the addresses, so you, you can't get other addresses. So that is uh, tunnel mode. I'll now Oh yeah, and uh, there's uh, of course a third possibility that you have an end system here talking with a system here via a security gateway. This is typically, yes? Is this really necessary because the, the router could go into this end server and go There's no guarantee that it will go via this security gateway. In practice, it may often be the case. But if you only give, say, the address of this system, and you can reach this system via multiple ways, then it might be that it's not going via this gateway, but via the other way. So it's connected to two providers, for example. Um, of course, you can configure it in such a way that you're right, and maybe you can even do it in practice. But uh, if you want to do it architecturally sound, you shouldn't do this, yeah, what I call hack or something like that. Uh, you should explicitly say that the data that you send from this system should go to this security gateway. Um, Another question? Yes. Um, yeah, that's a good that's that's a good remark. Let's go back to yeah, tunnel mode in general, or uh, one of the slides I had earlier. Um, if you use IPsec in this way, that you have security gateways here, 
then after the security gateway or before the security gateway here or after the security gateway at the receiving site, it is not encrypted anymore. But that's a choice that you make. You either have to install IPsec on every end system and then you can with an end-to-end -end connection Yes, of course, you can. You, you could still, if you want, have IPsec running here, IPsec running there, and still have security gateways who do the second IPsec. That is, that is possible, absolutely. And if you still don't trust it, then you still run over this IPsec, you run uh, SSH or uh, HTTPS, and so that's the, uh, but it's absolutely possible what you say that uh, they still but also end-to-end -end run IPsec. But usually you don't want to install this software on every machine. It's, from a management perspective, it's not very easy. Okay. Um, let's now look at the two protocols that we have. How this is the main part of uh, today. The IPsec AH and the IPsec ESP protocols. And first, I'll give a slide which compares the functionality of AH and ESP, both for transport mode and for tunnel mode. And if you look at AH, it is authenticating the IP payload plus selected portions of the IP header. And with this authentication algorithm, you also make sure that you can't modify anything in, say, selection, selected portion of this IP header. Um, but you can still read it. So if you send something via AH and someone in the middle is capturing your packets, the one in the middle can read everything that you sent. If you look at tunnel mode, there's again only authentication, but this time it is of the entire inner IP packet plus again portions of the outer IP header like we have here. If you look at ESP, it is simply encrypting the entire payload, or in case of tunnel mode, it's encrypting the inner IP packet. Or if you use ESP with authentication, it is in addition authenticating the IP payload, but not the IP header. So you run, um, say, a message authentication code, for example, with AH over parts of the IP header, but you don't do that with <coughs> ESP. I'll come back to that a little bit later and I'll ask a question if this difference is a problem in practice. Yes? What about the IPsec headers? Are they also authenticated? Um, I'll also c come back to that because there's another slide and if I explain um, what would happen if you authenticate encrypt these headers then I can immediately show it. So. Come back to that question if you think that I forget it. Uh, yeah. uh, the first thing that I would like to do is look at the uh, AH header. And the header is basically as follows. This is the header. So remember, you have the IP header on top of it and the data below. So the TCP or UDP payload is below. So this is just in between. What you have in the beginning is this next header field, which tells you that the next protocol header will be TCP, UDP, or whatever. Yeah. Then you have the 
payload length. Uh, the term is a bit um, confusing because it's only the length of this part and not the part of, say, what comes behind. There are some fields reserved. Then you have the security parameters index. Basically, this is a 32-bit pointer to your internal database. And it tells the receiver that you use this kind of encryption algorithms, this kind of uh, authentication algorithms, these are the keys, etc. So it is an, a, a pointer to your local database that you need to decrypt the packet. So you don't send, of course, the keys, yeah, the encryption and authentication keys in your packet, but you send an identification that you agreed earlier, hey, these are the um, keys that we agreed on and this is the pointer to your internal data structure. Then we have a sequence number and we have authentication data. Um, and the authentication data is usually an integrity check value. So this is a value which allows you to check if the data that is protected by this check, so the TCP that's behind, if that is modified. I said earlier that if you look at IPsec, all versions can detect replay. Now to you the question, how would you be able to detect replay? So you're designing a protocol and you need to build in your protocol a way to detect replays. How would you do that? Sequence numbers, I hear someone say, who thinks a sequence number is a good idea? One, two, three, four, some more people, good. Um, who has other ideas? How could you do it as well? Timestamp, time good. If you would do a timestamp, what would be the difficulty of doing that? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what you see in some protocols is that people use timestamps. So they simply say, we did send this package exactly at this moment in time. And then you allow, for example, half a minute or 10 seconds or whatever, that the packet may arrive later. But the problem if you use timestamps is that the sender and the receiver should be synchronized. Uh, so they should run the same or yeah, time. If you have GPS, that's not a problem, but within a building, building having GPS, that is not going to work. So GPS is not uh, something that is built in computers to do uh, time synchronization. Do you know what we are using usually for time synchronization? How do we synchronize computers on the network? Yeah, NTP, Network Time Protocol. So there's a protocol on the internet that we use to set the clock of all your systems. But um, relying on that is not in all protocols a good solution. For example, you also have SNMP version 3, which is discussed, by the way, in the book of Stallings, but is not part of this lecture. If you look at SNMP v3, they use 
a kind of timestamp, but they don't use the network time protocol. And the reason why they don't use network time protocol is that for the management protocol, they don't want to rely on other protocols. So they want to have it as isolated or um, working without any dependencies on other protocols. Uh, but then you have the problem of synchronization, and there they have a very difficult administration to keep track of uh, replays. But okay, if you look at IPsec, we don't use timestamps, but we use uh, sequence numbers. But we don't just check if we receive the next sequence number, but we have a kind of window which we allow. Uh, usually the window is 64 packets. Why do we need the window? Why not say I just received sequence number 112, I expect now 113. And if it's not 113, but uh, 108, then there's something wrong. Yes, correct. If you look at the internet, it is designed in such a way that packets are routed independently of each other. And it may be that some packets arrive earlier than packets that were just sent in front of it. So you need to be able to cope with a certain amount of reordering. So you need a certain window size where you say, well, although I did receive packet 112, I have not yet received packet 108, but I have a window size, 64 I said is, is a common window size, so 64 packets. And if it's still in this window size, you accept it. But if it is much earlier, so it's not anymore in your window size, then you assume, hey, this packet must be resent. So it's duplication. Someone did send it again. Now, for example, a packet which tells the uh, firewall at the university to open it. And if you once captured it and you would like to send it again, then the sequence number will no not be within this window size. So it will be detected at the other size. There's also an integrity check value if you look at uh, AH, so let's look back. You have here, uh, say, authentication data, which basically has this integrity check value. So it's a kind of digital signature that you create over the payload and parts of the header. And these are at least the algorithms that you have to support, which is MD5 and secure hash. Uh, and you do use these algorithms to calculate the checksum over the IP data and over those IP header fields that do not change in transit. That is, of course, the requirement, uh, fields that do not change in transit, because you only want to create this integrity check value at the beginning not only you want, you only can calculate it there because you, the sender, have the keys and intermediate systems don't have the keys. Routers in the network don't have the keys. So fields that are changing, if you include that, yeah, then suddenly a router in between is changing the field and then the integrity check value is no longer correct. 
So this is relatively yeah, obvious. And now the question to you is, um, if the integrity check value is calculated over the most of the IP header, which header fields should be included and which not? So IP version number. Should IP version number be included in the checksum value? Who says yes? Who says no? And who doesn't say anything? Okay, I'll wake you up in a few minutes because then it's break. So um, Most people had the right answer. The IP version number is not going to change in transit. So you're not suddenly changing IP4 and IP version 6. That is too simple. It's not like that. So it remains stable, so you do the integrity check value over the IP version number. Now the IP source and destination addresses. Um, should they be included or not? Who says yes? Hmm. Less people. Who says no? And who has no clue? It's roughly the same. Um, why do you think they are included? You need, they are unique for, say, yeah, the source and destination. So they don't change over time. Yes. So from that perspective, I would say you're right. Well, the, the source has an IP address, the destination has an IP address, and these ad addresses remain the same. Who says no? Or, yeah, uh, there are a couple of people who say no. Why not no? Why is it no? I'm not sure I understand what you said. Someone else? Okay, good, good point. So the answer was it might be that uh, you want to do load balancing. So you want to send your data to one of, say, 10 servers, and you don't care too much which one, and it may be changed. Um, interesting point, but it's not the answer that I expected. <laughs> Other people. You, are, you were first, and you didn't know the previous one, so it's your choice now. Yeah? Yes? So, you say you may have a network address translator in between, and the goal of a network address translator is to translate network addresses, so they are not the same. Is that what other people say as well? No? Yeah, but um, so what you're saying is that um, there could be a matching between the keys for encryption and uh, authentication uh, with the IP addresses. Um, that is a reasoning which I understand, but it's not correct. You have the SPI for that, the Security Parameter Index. Uh, and that's something which you should be careful to use the IP addresses for finding the, the right keys, because people may want to change it, IP spoofing, this kind of stuff. There was another remark? Yeah, well, uh, if, if someone changes the destination address, for 
um, what you're saying is if someone is um, changing the destination address, then it wouldn't arrive at the destination, and so the entire authentication would be useless. But you authenticate the source and not the destination. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll give you the answer. Uh, basically, it is included at uh, the source and destination addresses, but the obvious problem is the things that people mentioned. You can't transfer network address translators because they modify it, and then at the receiving side you say, hey, this is not, say, the, the right address anymore. So, um, you can't do load balancing, for example. So, they decided to include the, the source and destination addresses for obvious reasons, for security reasons, but it comes at a cost. The cost is that you can't transfer network address translators. Okay, let's now look at the time to live field. Should you include that one? Who says yes? Who says no? Wow, you're doing well. IP header length? Um, who said yes? Who says no? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, IP header checksum. Oh no, so uh, the total packet length, IP total packet length, should that be included? The answer is yes again. Make it easy for you. Checksum. You have to include it as well. Who says yes? Yeah. Who says no? Yes, the header checksum is basically already a protection of all these fields, and some of these fields change over time. So if you, if you, make, if you check if this one has been modified, yes, uh, most likely it will have been modified. So then you have to throw away basically every packet. So that wouldn't be a good idea to include the header checksum. Finally, type of service field. With, uh, these are roughly all the fields that were in the IP header, but I'm sure you all remember them. Should they be included or not? Who says yes? Type of service field should be included. Who says no? And who's, ha, do you have a reason why it is no? Yeah, it is 80-90% um, correct, the answer. What is um, happening is that this type of service field is used, for example, in DivServe, differentiated services. And uh, so you can uh, select a certain quality of service if you select certain bit settings. But uh, differentiated services does not have a standard which says this pattern is this kind of service. Each operator can choose its own bit pattern for it. So if you say, I want gold service, then it may be this bit pattern with one operator, and the next has another bit pattern. So it should be translated then between those operators. So type of service field may change while it is being, the packet is being transferred. I think this is a nice moment to have coffee break. We'll come back in, say, 10 minutes from now. Yeah. For the break, we uh, discussed IPsec, rough overview, standardization, 
the different modes, transport tunnel mode, and we started with uh, IPsec AH, and uh, there's still a couple of slides that I have for IPsec AH, which I will at this moment <coughs> explain. So um, the next two slides basically show how you can use IPsec AH on this slide in transport mode, and the next slide, of course, in tunnel mode. This is a picture, by the way, that I took from this website. And um, it shows the original IP packet, where you have the header here and the payload here. And it shows the AH transport mode thing that you, that, that you sent. What is the same? Well, if you look at the TCP header plus payload, it is here again. So that is exactly the same. If you look at the IP version 4 header, it is still there. <coughs> Remember that in transport mode we did not include a new header, but we used the old header. So the old header is still there, but there are some fields that changed. One <coughs> of the things that changes is in the original IP version 4 pack packet, you said that the next protocol is TCP. So you point here. You change that and you say the next protocol is IPsec AH and you point to, to here. However, in the IPsec header, which is this part, you include now a pointer to the TCP payload. So this field, which was originally in the IP4 header, is now moved to the IPsec header. So in this way, you still have um, yeah, pointers to what comes later. What you see also is that there are things colored. On my machine, it is, uh, it is yellow, but this looks a bit greenish yellow, I would say. Um, these are the fields that are protected by IPsec. So you have the authentication data, so it's the MD5 of secure hash value, which you put here. Um, and this value protects the colored parts in here. So it doesn't protect a couple of fields, which we just discussed. But it's also not covering itself. Why not? So people can change it, and that will not be detected. Hmm? Yes. Uh, so if you change this, then yeah, you check this against the rest. Well, if this is changed and the rest remains the same, um, you'll see a failure. So um, you don't need to protect this. What you basically do is if you calculate this value, you put zeros for this and you run it over this entire thing. And then you put this value there. Okay, this is the way how you use it in transport mode. Let's now look at tunnel mode. And remember in tunnel mode we did include an extra header. So in tunnel mode, what we do is if this is again the original IP packet, we move the entire original IP packet, we move it here. So this is now the original packet. 
And on top of that packet, we have the IPsec header. And on top of that, we have the IP version 4 new header. Again, you see that we have here the, the next protocol fields change. So this first is pointing to IPsec AH, which starts here. And IPsec AH is pointing to IP, which starts here. And IP here uh, is pointing to TCP. <coughs> what is important to know is note is that these addresses may be different from the address ad addresses that we have here. This is something we discussed before. Here you put, for example, the addresses of the gateways, the security gateways, where these are the original addresses, are the addresses of the two end systems that want to communicate. So in many cases you find that these addresses are different. There's also a mistake in this thing that I copied. This should be packet length, just like you have here. That's a minor mistake. Um, let's now come to this question. Can IPsec AH operate over NET? The answer is yes, no, or depends. Who says yes? Who says no? Who says it depends? And on what will it depend? Will it depend on if the network address translator is at the sender side or at the receiver side? Will that have any impact? Who says yes? It makes impact if you have the net on the sender or receiver. And who says it depends whether you use transport mode or tunnel mode? We did discuss this for the break, by the way. And the answer was no. So it doesn't depend. But this is politically the uh, depends is usually what people select if they have multiple choice. They, they think that's the safest thing. It depends. They don't know on what. But no, it's not working. So if you use it over uh, transport or if you use it over tunnel mode, no difference. It will not work. It's a network address translator. It's at one side or the other, doesn't work. Work. So why doesn't it work? Well, um, the network address translator will change these source and destination IP addresses. And if you change these source and destination IP addresses, then the, um, say, the authentication uh, or, or how the uh, checksum that you create uh, will not be correct anymore because this is changed. So something wrong. So it will never work. Um, and you can even argue that, well, in some cases you don't need to change uh, IP addresses, but then uh, uh, you have network address translators that uh, change ports, uh, ports, uh, transport ports. If you change transport ports, they're somewhere hidden in here. So if you change something hidden in here, then again, the uh, message authentication code will not be correct anymore. So it will never work. Um, so this is one of the questions that I regularly ask during exams. And you saw the number of uh, fingers raised uh, to know how many people have it correct or not. There's a question over there. Um, 
if a network address translator is changing something here, hmm? if you change the ports, it is in here. So if you change the ports, you you change the packets, and uh, so you change the fields over which you uh, calculate your uh, message authentication code. Yeah, but then you need to know. Ex <laughs> now what you're saying is, if you make a modification, and you make the opposite modification, then no one will notice. Yes, that's correct. But that's not the, the typical usage, I think, of a hacker, to change something, to change it back without noticing. Hmm? Yeah, but these nuts, they're not synchronized. They don't know from each other what. Um, if you are able to set up a prototype which demonstrates this, then uh, maybe you get extra points for the exam. So, Okay, that was AH. Let's now continue and look at ESP. And this is the header for ESP. Remember again that for ESP we have the IP header on top of it, and we have Oh, no. um, but we don't have, say, the, uh, the, the payload because this is part of the payload. Yeah? So this is also TCP. <coughs> so what is happening here? Um, sorry, this is not the payload. This is the payload, of course. Yeah? So what is happening here? That you put at the end authentication data. And this is TCP, so you calculate your authentication data. So it is uh, things like this message authentication code. You calculate it over the entire TCP payload. And uh, by calculating it over the entire TCP payload, you make sure that if someone wants to change anything in here, you will detect it because this authentication code will no longer be correct. Just like AH, you also have the security parameter index, uh, which was this pointer to your database so that at the receiving side you know I have used these algorithms for encryption, authentication, these keys, etc. 32-bit number. You have this sequence number to again protect against uh, replay. Um, you have um, a next header field, but the next header field is coded at the end of your, of your packet, basically. So this next header field points to basically what starts here. So it says this is TCP, for example. Also, there is padding, which means that you add extra bytes at the end. Why do you do this padding? Yes, you have in many cases, you have uh, encryption algorithms that uh, work on blocks of, say, uh, yeah, certain size. So you have to make sure that packetism or this stuff on which you do this calculation is a multiple of this block size. So for that reason, you have to do some padding. <coughs> you do well. <laughs> you ask if something is easier. Um, that's always a difficult question. Um, they decided to do something like this uh, and use, uh, say, uh, DES, uh, AES, these kind of. Uh, 
Um, I can't give the answer if that's easy or not. Um, I don't know exactly why people did certain things in certain ways. Uh, there are sometimes also reasons which are of non-technical nature or things came later or whatever, so historical reasons. So I don't, don't know the answer. Sorry. Uh, okay, so this is the header. What is now what you have to support? If you build an IPsec ESP implementation, you must support this, uh, MD5, and secure hash. And there are a large number of optional encryption algorithms like triple DES, RC5, AES, which is probably the one that is most used nowadays, and some things, Blowfish, ID, triple ID, and so um, you have lots of options. But this is what you always have to implement. If you look at authentication that you can also do with ESP, you'll see that only the ESP header and the encrypted payload are authenticated. So it is not the, uh, the IP header that you uh, encrypt. And uh, that's also something that I have on the next slide. So you um, you authenticate, I was talking about authentication. So this is what you authenticate, and you don't authenticate this. So people in between may change the source and destination IP address. So for example, if there's an attacker in the middle who changes the source IP address and puts his own address there, so the responses will go back to that attacker in the middle, will it be a security problem? Who thinks yes? Who thinks no? Why do you think it's not a security problem? Well, yes, the payload is still encrypted. So what you could do is create a kind of denial of service attack or something like that, that responses will never come back to the sender. But then the you receive these responses, but it is encrypted. You don't have the keys to decrypt it, so you have no clue what it is. So you may change this, but you can't do anything with the data. That is different if you look at AH. With AH, you didn't have this encryption. So with AH, if you would be able to change the source IP address, things would come back to you. And if it would come back to you, then you could read it. Works the replay protection in this case? Um, because sequence number is not, uh, yeah. Um, hmm? Sorry, yes, this is encrypted and this is authenticated. Thank you for giving the answer. I was already thinking, um, hey, yes, uh, there must be something wrong here. But um, good observation that if you wouldn't protect this uh, sequence number and the security parameter index, things would go wrong, but that is this blue line and this is the encrypted. So no yeah. Nice that you give the answers for me. I like that. 
Okay, so this is the transport mode. If we now go to tunnel mode, um, so here we had, in transport mode, we had the TCP data. If you go to tunnel mode, you also have the original IP header. So this stuff is completely in here. Uh, and here you have this new <coughs> header. Uh, everything here is encrypted. So even the original source and destination IP addresses, which are in here, are encrypted. So here you may have the source and destination IP addresses of the gateways. But someone who is capturing the data will not even be able to see which systems behind these security gateways are talking with, with each other, because this is completely encrypted. Uh, the obvious question now is, of course, will IPsec ESP work over network address translators? Who thinks yes? And who says no? And who is completely lost? and needs the weekend. Ah, <laughs> some, some honest people. Um, well, if you look at authentication and encryption, you do not include the original IP headers, huh? so what I showed here. So they are not included. So network address translators can modify these addresses. So from that perspective, it will work. However, Network address translators need to relate requests to responses. And they often use port numbers for that. So for example, uh, you can have one connection, no, you can have, with one web server, you can have multiple connections. But they, you, you can distinguish them because they have unique port numbers somewhere. So that is something that network address translators often look at. But you can't read these port numbers. They are encrypted. And the, yeah, the request and response, these bits where the port numbers should be there, they will be encrypted in different ways. So you, where the port numbers are, you, you can't use it. So, um, and you can't use other values, like for example the SPI values. So, this indicates that it is possible, but there are still a lot of things that makes it hard. And there is an RFC that is describing IPsec over nets and compatibility requirements. So in certain cases, if you, have, if you are very careful, you can still run IPsec over network address translators. But it is not trivial. It's not easy. Okay. I'm now here where I want to talk about IPsec and virtual private networks. And basically, the first slide is something that I already discussed a couple of times. If you want to create a virtual private network, what you want is that a host here, connected on this network, can talk with a host on this network, and they talk with each other as if they are on the same network. And they may tra transfer stuff over the internet, so they may not be really on the same network, but they may have the impression that they are on the same network, since here you have this gateway who is doing this translation and puts IPsec here. And um, so you can use IPsec to create virtual private networks. What you often see huh, is uh, you use it then in uh, tunnel mode. Then uh, these systems will have IP addresses which are in the same range. So you, 
from the IP addresses you don't see if you are on this uh, LAN or on this one. Huh? Uh, you use it, for example, if you want to connect from home and you're not on the campus to the uh, university network and you want to use DANs. Uh, many systems that are indexed by DANs have some, some rule which says that if you're from outside the campus and they look at the IP address, then you can't access data. Uh, if you use the VPN that the university provides, assume this is the university, this is your home environment, then what you get on your home system, which is probably connected to Ziggo or whatever, um, you get an additional IP address which belongs to the IP range of the university. So this system will then have probably two IP addresses, one for Ziggo if you connect via the internet to Google or whatever, and one internet address which is within the domain of the University of Twente. The question that you can ask now is, is IPsec the only solution for VPNs? And then the answer is no. For example, the faculty EWI had in the past IPsec for their VPN, but now all ICT support is centralized and the faculty has moved from an IPsec solution to a peer-to-peer -peer transport protocol or point-to-point, -point, sorry, peer-to-peer -peer tunneling protocol or point-to-point -point tunneling protocol. You see both names say basically for the same thing. Uh, so we move to this at the university level. If you look worldwide, you still see that for IPsec is used more than PPTP, but it is somehow comparable. This protocol is a protocol which is originally defined by Microsoft and Cisco. Um, it is um, using a kind of control channel, PPTP channel, uh, for controlling purposes. And data is sent via another protocol. Um, there are lots of discussions about how secure this solution is. I think the general consensus is that it is less secure than IPsec. However, it is easier to maintain than IPsec. So from a manager's perspective, who is not too concerned about security, this is often the solution that you take. That is the solution that we took at the university. If you have a very sensitive environment, then IPsec might be the better option, although it is more complex. You have, next to these two, you have more possibilities to create a VPN. You have the layer two tunneling protocol. Um, you have proprietary solutions like Hamachi. Who ever heard of Hamachi? And who is sometimes doing computer games? Oh, I expected exactly the same number of people. Because for some computer games, this is quite popular. And, uh, they create, for this, th these games, they create a VPN. Uh, but what is more and more uh, used in practice is uh, a VPN solution, like OpenVPN, which works over SSL or TLS. So basically what you do is, you don't do all this security stuff at the network layer, but you move it one layer higher. 
to the transport layer. So only end systems see it, and intermediate systems, routers, etc., don't see it. The advantage is that if you, if you use something like this, it works much easier over network address translators. Configuration is easier, etc. So this is getting more and more popular. So where we originally thought, let's do at the network level the security, yeah, the authentication, encryption, you see that it is getting more popular to move it to the, to the transport layer. Okay, um, I'll come back to SSL TLS at the next lecture. Let's now move to the, say before the summary, the last part is IPsec key management. This is a very complex yeah, uh, topic, and I'll just go over it very fast, very uh, high level. Uh, the first thing is that you have the choice to do key management in a manual way and automatic way. Remember, you need key management to make sure that the sender and the receiver use the same keys for encryption and use the same keys for uh, authentication. Well, of course, you can manually provide all the systems with these keys, but you immediately understand that if you have more than a few systems which are not all under your control that if you give away keys to others then in no time the entire world will know it. There will be websites where they publish your keys. So manual key management is something you can only do in very limited cases. So usually you need an automatic algorithm. You can ask yourself now however why do we need such a mechanism? Because there is something like public key algorithms. So you just have a public key which you make available to everyone and you have a private key. And that combination is enough to do encryption, uh, authentication, whatever. So why would you need key management? Why not just use this public key infrastructure? Who has an idea? Yes, that is the key answer. Um, what was said is if you use public private keys then these algorithms are much slower than if you would use symmetric keys. How much slower do you think it will be? Is it a factor 2? Is it a factor 10? A factor 100? Or? Yes, it's a roughly a factor 100. So there's a huge, huge, huge performance penalty if you use uh, public keys. Still, private keys is something that doesn't work as well because they will get known. So what is it that most protocols are doing? For the startup phase they rely on public keys. Then they take this very CPU intensive approach and create a channel which is secure. Once they have that channel, they don't start exchanging the user data over it because the algorithms are too expensive in CPU time. No, they just use this channel to create new keys, but this time they create symmetric keys. So you start with public keys, and the purpose of the starting phase is to move to symmetric keys. 
So you can now move to algorithms which are much, much, much faster. And this is a principle that you see basically always. And so in most cases, you will use, uh, in the beginning, the public key infrastructure. You use that to create a safe channel. You use this safe channel to create new keys. You generate keys, only valid for that session. And um, these yeah, valid keys are now symmetric keys, and you use the fast algorithms. So that is a very basic principle, and uh, I will repeat it next time also for the transport layer again. But this is something which is amongst my favorite questions at the exams, so you better remember that. Um, okay, so you have an automatic algorithm which transfers these um, public keys into, into um, symmetric keys. Um, for that automatic algorithm is so-called Internet Key Exchange algorithm, and it is basically a collection of a number of existing protocols, which I'm not going to discuss in detail. I'm just telling you that this is not just one simple specification. It's a combination of multiple protocols which you have to put together. Um, and there are also two versions, but I'll come to that a little bit later. Let's first look at, uh, say, version 1, Internet Key Exchange protocol. It has two phases. The first phase is the phase I just described. You create a security association, so a secure communication channel between the two communicating entities, which you then use to create new channels where you have symmetric keys. So you create IPsec security associations in phase two. And you can do this once, but then create multiple IPsec security associations after that for your data. So this is just for creating keys, and this is for exchanging data. But at a certain moment, if you have transferred a lot of data, you need to change your keys, for example. You do it, say, via this way, and then you create new keys for, uh, you have to create even a new security association then. So you have to to stop transferring data for a moment and move to a new security association. Uh, so let's now look at phase one. You have there two modes. A main mode, which I think has uh, six messages, yes, and an aggressive mode where you need three messages. And for authentication, you can use pre-shared keys, digital signatures, public key encryption. That's what I was talking earlier and also revised public key encryption. Don't ask me the difference between these two, by the way. Um, what is the key message that I want to tell you here is that you have here two modes, time four methods. It's eight possibilities already. And if you don't implement all eight of them, it might be that you implement different subsets and one system is not able to communicate with the other. So uh, that is one of the, one of the problems. By the way, you use for this... Uh, no, no, let's skip that. If you look at phase two, you again have a quick mode, uh, or you have one mode, quick mode, which is three messages, but you have again many, many options. And so basically what you see is that there are many ways how you can create IPsec secure associations. Which brings me also to the problems with IKE, which is interoperability. You have so many options that, yeah, you don't know which one to choose. 
there are no options which you always have to implement where you can fall back on that option and it always works. So there are no safe default settings. And it may be that you have deadlocks. That a certain combination of options at one side will not work together with the options at the other side. And then you're sitting there and things are not working. You have no clue what is happening. Also, if you look at IKE, it has too much comp computation. And if it has too much computation, then if you want to do a denial of service attack, then yeah, this is great. You just send once in a while a packet. You keep the IKE implementation quite busy, and the server is not responding to anything else anymore. Um, there are people who say it's so complex you can't understand it anymore. And fundamentally, if you create something which should be secure, it should be such that you want to understand it. If you don't understand it anymore, then it is not secure. So um, it's too complex. Uh, one of the reasons is also that the description is scattered over lots of documents. Uh, I showed you before how many people, how many documents there are. So work started on version 2. And that should improve the situation. I think uh, this is much better accepted than the, the original version 1. Um, and also what is important is that from the beginning they address the problems of tra uh, traversing network address translators. Of course, only if you have ESP mode. That brings me to the summary of today. Summary is... There are two kinds of, say, data exchange protocols for IPsec, AH and ESP. You have two modes, transport mode and tunnel mode, and there is a separate key management protocol. If you look at usage, it is below what we expected a couple of years ago. You see that more and more stuff is, its security level is going to transport layer. And there were a couple of problems. And these problems are basically interoperability. You have too many options. This is a statement I like a lot. IPsec is too complex to be secure. Um, you have the problem of traversing network address translator. We saw before that AH primarily has that problem. And AH is the one, if you remember the slides in the beginning, which is still hardly being used. ESP, you see strong growth. And this growth may be related to the fact that yeah, these network address translators will never be something where AH will run through. Um, also, you have problems that, for example, some operators change IP addresses, and if you change IP addresses and you rely on, say, the IP addresses, then suddenly your connection breaks down. Further, there are performance problems. Uh, this fragmentation that you include this extra header may mean that instead of one lower layer uh, packet, you need multiple. Setting up secure associations may take quite some time, uh, so this key management takes time. And also, you need for encryption, decryption, you need time. So these are also problems. If you look now at implementations, you see that IPsec, you have uh, implementations in Windows, Linux, Mac, o uh, Mac OS, BSD. Um, but you don't find, say, uh, many open source solutions for that. And it is still relatively hard to uh, implement it. Last slide are the references. Where is this stuff described? Well, it's in chapter six of Stallings. If you go to Wikipedia IPsec, you find lots of stuff. There's an extra guide to IPsec from which I borrowed some. I'll come to you a little bit later. 
from which I borrowed some slides. We have, of course, IETF if you want to know the details, and we will have the video somewhere next week available. You have a question. Yes, I want to put my storage. You have version 4? Yes. yes. Yes, we understood just yeah, after the first lecture that there is this version 4. We were not informed of that, and um, I don't know when it actually appeared. Maybe we should have seen it earlier. We are trying to get the, the, the book now, and we will make sure that um, numbers or whatever, that, that there's, a, there's a good matching. Because I understand your problem. The yeah, Peter Czech is busy getting it, so... Uh, and I don't know how, maybe he has it already, so. Um, the part which is on um, TLS and SSL. Other questions? If not, then um, if you don't have any lectures left, then uh, have a nice weekend. Enjoy the weekend. I hope it's great weather.